Welcome to the Learner Centered Spaces podcast, where we empower and inspire ownership of learning, sponsored by Mastery Portfolio. And I'm one of your hosts, Star Saxstein. I'm another host, Emma Chapetta. And I'm Crystal Frommert. In each episode, we will bring you engaging conversations with a wide variety of educators, both in and out of the classroom. This podcast is created for educators who want to learn more about how to make the shift toward learner-centered spaces for their students, schools, and districts, or education at large. So get ready to be inspired as we dive right into the conversation with today's guest. Today, we are talking with Rick Wormley, longtime classroom teacher in both elementary and secondary levels, now author and teacher, principal trainer, author of Fair Isn't Always Equal, second edition, summarization in any subject, second edition, columnist, differentiation from planning to practice, among other titles, proudly a new grandpa and a chocolate pecan pie fan club member. It's so great to have you on with us today. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your role, location, some stuff about your journey, or some interesting facts? There's nothing to see here. Let's move on. No, <laughs> no I'm located in the Washington, D.C. area in Northern Virginia and was a teacher for about a quarter of a century in the classroom. And then I left the classroom to work with teachers and write articles and books. And the articles became a critical mass. And then I started writing books uh, for that. And now I continue around the nation and abroad, uh, working with teachers and principals and superintendents on a variety of issues, mostly in, in the world of differentiation, equity, grading, uh, assessment, uh, uh, the cognitive science applied uh, to students. And then how do you respond to students who might learn a little differently and cultivating uh, teacher, educator, leader, creativity. Uh, interesting fact, I, I have found three dead bodies in my life. And uh, I was originally going to try to be a doctor, but I ran into organic and inorganic chemistry in college and decided to get a life. So that that's where here I am today. Oh, I know the biggest thing. I'm a fairly nude in the last two years. Grandpa. So I'm, I'm rocking that. We have two grandkids and I just I would love to spend all my time with them. Well, congratulations. congratulations. That's so exciting for you and your family. And we're so grateful to have you and all of your varied experiences with us today. Um, and I guess what I'm curious about is what does a learner-centered space look like, feel like, sound like to you? I'm sure you've experienced lots of them throughout your journey. Yeah. I mean, there are physical things. Like I, I, you can walk into a classroom and tell whether it's teacher-centered or learner-centered within moments. I mean, there are certain obvious things like the student work is up at eye level for the students served in that classroom, not somewhere near the ceiling where nobody can read it or really appreciate it. And that artwork or that product, product whatever the products are, um, is actually referenced during the lessons and, and, and reaffirmed that the students' names are actually mentioned every single day. So they have proof that they exist, that the teacher spends an inordinate amount of time getting to know the kids not because they want to hear stories and be entertained, but literally because it infuses everything they do, every interaction. For example, um, a student is not understanding something. So the teacher is well-versed in metaphor and analogy genesis and using that strategically in a, in a lesson. So then they realize this student is not learning. Let me draw from that student's 
background, what I know about it, and make an analogy comparing this new thing you're learning and in, in kind of recoding it in terms of something they already understand. Oh, look, an aha mini epiphany. They get it. When I see teachers be very proactive in trying to get to know the kids as individuals, see them as fully dimensionalized, way more than just one more paper to mark, so to speak, then I know that, ah, they realize it's about the student learning, not about the teacher pre presenting. So then when I see that they're fighting for the students to, uh, to learn the material rather than to prove that they got through it or to document that the lesson was done or merely to document where the student falls, like in a false sense of accountability with things regarding some standard or some learner outcome. When I see the teacher is really focused on the learning, regardless of the time it takes, maybe being gently insubordinate from time to time, that I know the, the teacher is really there for the, in the service of the student. Emma? Yeah. So before we spoke, you mentioned that you have a lot of experience in cultivating tenacity in both students and teachers. And I have noticed that when we really center our students, sometimes they're a little bit afraid because they have to do more of the work and it requires tenacity. So could you tell us a little bit more about that? Man, that's a dissertation and a half. <laughs> I mean, we could go a lot of different directions there. But, you know, I'm, I'm a huge believer that the student does the majority of the analysis of his or her or their work against a standard, not a teacher bestowing from on high, you've landed here. You know, here's where you are along the continuum. I want the student to do the heavy lifting and then the analysis of where do I need to go next, you know, as a result. So the, the world of that descriptive, timely, useful feedback really comes to play. But the idea of self-monitoring and I own my learning and that teachers speak in terms of decisions made, not in terms of quality. Otherwise, it's a slippery slope into assigning attribute. And we don't want to be doing that because that invokes ego. And am I in a safe place? Do I need to self-preserve? I mean, when you talk to teachers and they say, hey, thank you for letting me observe your class. I wonder if later today I could stop by and give you some feedback. Well, the teachers are automatically getting defensive and feeling a bit threatened, like, oh, no, what is he going to say? That sort of thing, when it should be, feed me, Seymour, feed me. In other words, how can I possibly do well without the feedback? And it's a positive thing, not something just to endure, not something to, to, to feel threatened. So I want the students to begin to own their learning. And when they analyze their own work, rather than having a judgment bestowed on it, they're willing to follow through on it. And it, it reminds me so much that hope is far more demanding than is despair. So if I teach or assess in such a way as to create hope and efficacy in the students, they're willing to persevere. But one of the other big issues is so many teachers falsely think that punitive grading is the way to teach or help that maturity evolve. It's not. We have to overtly teach, not leave to chance or some kid's developmental level, but overtly teach executive function skills. So how do I do my task analysis? How do I start projects and maintain their little bits along the way in a timely manner? How do I remember things appropriately you know, from home? All these different things that sometimes drive teachers nuts while they're not overtly teaching the skills. So if I perceive I have the skill set, I'm way more inclined to put my heart into the endeavor. But I'm not, I'm going to accept this premise that you can't motivate anybody to do anything because motivation comes from within but I can create an environment and give you the tools. And with the perception that you have tools, you're more likely to follow and do it. 
I can give you the tools in the environment where you're likely to invest in, in what's going on. So there's a lot to this tenacity thing, but just sitting there reprimanding or demanding from afar or wagging an admonishing finger it, it, it is a cop-out. It, it's a weak teacher who does that and thinks, oh, look, I've just taught the kid and helped them mature. It's how do I help the kid cultivate a sense of drive and agency, of course, voice and choice. So my authentic narrative is a part of the learning table that has been set for me. I see myself as having a role in here and the teacher is facilitating this journey as opposed to, well, the teacher's inherited narrative is the only thing that's important and mine is subordinated in some way. There, there's lots and lots of ways to create the tenacity and that's just, just a few. I, one last thing I'll just throw in there. We have a, a tsunami of uh, anxiety, panic disorder, and depression. And one of the signs of depression and anxiety is backing off and not doing stuff. I'd rather you thought I could do it rather than give you proof I'm a fool or I'm an idiot and I, I, I can't do it, so to speak. And more and more kids, even kids who are academically very strong and well-resourced are entering that world. So one of my first thoughts when a kid is not showing tenacity and perseverance is that this is kind of unnatural because we're from birth, we're born to want to belong, be successful, try and do demanding things and, and belong and all these different things. And when that's presented as apathy or laziness or forgetfulness, there's probably something else going on we have to address, and then we can return back to the learning. Does that help? Yeah, that's perfect. I love how you made that strong connection between really, truly having a learner-centered space and cultivating tenacity at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I, I love your answer. It was beautiful. I want to shout it from the rooftops, <laughs> and um, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring it down to reality sure. just a little bit here with because um, you you talked a lot about um, assessment and feedback mm -hmm. and and all of those things are what I want to do in my own classroom. But I think a lot of of our listeners are probably in the same boat that I'm in. That I teach in a school where we give traditional pencil and paper tests. We are required to report grades. Um, at you know, the end of each grading yeah. period. So what would you say to teachers um, who are, are really jiving with what you're saying and really want to build that efficacy with our students um, and that partnership with the feedback, but they still have to comply to some of the traditional expectations of a school? Oh, yeah. Well, the first thing is just because, just because you can't do all of a principle or all of a vision or a mindset or a pedagogical approach doesn't mean you can't do some of it. And a lot of teachers are very conscientious and they want to do all of it when they're the first two weeks because they're very excited about it and they can't do that. So they do none of it? Nah. So I'm going to ask all teachers who want to get, move this way for the next two or three years, try one idea per month, you know, wobble along, lower your professional expectations, grant yourself the forgiveness, the grace to kind of move that forward just a little bit as you can. And you can do things in the microcosm of your class that you can translate into the school district's language so you can keep your job. So for example, I wanna be very evidence-driven, right? Criterion referenced, I don't wanna be norm referenced. So on all of my rubrics, all of my grading scales, whatever I'm gonna use, I'm never gonna say, well, he was above average or below average because that's how you're doing in relation to classmates. I wanna know, can you write a paragraph? You know, do you understand the parts of a plant? You know, do you have, understand a sense of rhetoric and you can analyze it in political speeches, whatever it might be. I want you to rally around the learning that's happening. So in the microcosm of the class, can I mix traditional assessments 
with non-traditional assessments, more innovative, creative, getting to the crux of it. Because not all traditional formats allow a, a learner to fully demonstrate where he or she or they understand and what they know. So if I have a kid who has a language barrier, maybe it's an English as a second language or something along those lines, or a learning disability, I have a moral obligation as a professional who's, who's ethical in an ethical enterprise to change the format so I get an accurate report from the child. So yes, I can do the traditional things, but I can augment with non-traditional creative things. And quite often, the alternative assessments where students give you a proposal on how they might want to demonstrate mastery actually is far more, it's deeper, it extends farther, it's more meaningful, and the kids remember it longer, which is ultimately the, the testimony for any teacher, any school, is what the kids carry forward, not what they once knew and then forgot. So if we have meaningful assessment and the students are doing the majority of the heavy lifting for that, rather than the teacher, because it makes it very passive and I want to make it very active, then you're actually achieving your goal there as you want to move that forward. So I'm, I'm hoping that um, that people would see that I can take you know these five out of these nine principles of a really good learner-centered classroom, and I can work on those and do that right now. But then I can volunteer to be on the committee to revise assessment and grading in our school. What a lot of schools do, and I actually did this, is we created equivalency charts. So what we would do is we say, okay, whatever our general proficiency expectations for different levels of performance, great. And then if we present that as an A, B, C, D, F, if we present that as percentages, if presented as a 3.0 scale, 4.0 scale, or blue moons, green stars, the whole lucky charms, it doesn't matter because we just automatically assign that nonsense placeholder that means this particular evidence of proficiency. So we always rally around the proficiency first in evidence. Then we figure out the symbol that the school district allows to report that. But one big issue there is if you haven't calibrated evidence with one another, you know, what does it mean to go from excellent or just almost excellent or developing early on or developing later on? Then that becomes a problem and teachers are wildly varying and they can't tell parents, yeah, you can trust the grades, they have integrity until you've actually calibrated evidence with your subject like colleagues. Thank you. I, I think what you said uh, for teachers who are in a traditional setting um, that, you know, even little bits yeah. um, make a difference. We don't have to to eat the whole pie. Yeah, right. Yeah. I love that. So thank you for mentioning that. Yeah. OK, so, Rick, one of the things like, aside from really appreciating everything that you've said so far, because I just you really succinctly explained why those things are all very important. And the specificity as it pertains to assessment is also really helpful. I, I was having a conversation with Tom Shimmer earlier. Oh, he's about, great. I love everything he does and says. I know. Me too. And it, it's pretty amazing just how assessment is one of those things that um, people on the outside oversimplify, and it's just so much more complex than we really give it credit for in in all of its in all of its pieces. And yeah. Yeah. I think when the grading conversation comes up, people want to do what's efficient and not what's necessarily effective. Um, and and I think that it really comes comes down to that when it comes to grading and assessment. Uh, what I would love to know a little bit more about right now, you just focused a lot on assessment. 
Could what advice or tips would you give to someone who wants to create a more learner-centered space in general? Well, kind of a bridge between the assessment and that learner-centered space is the idea that assessment should come under the umbrella of instruction, not the umbrella of gotcha accountability. And so if I see it as a way to gather data to inform instructional design and for the student to self-monitor and own his or her or their learning, then we're really in a, in a very, very effective space as, as we do that. Uh, but if I want to move tor towards the learner-centered, I'm going to overtly teach the kids specific descriptive feedback techniques. And as Star has pointed out in her peer assessment books, they'll be able to uh, give uh, peer feedback books, I should say. Um, they're going to be able to give feedback to self, feedback to one another that's way beyond, yeah, it's good. I didn't see anything wrong, <laughs> which is not helpful to anybody. So they're going to learn to be very specific and do it against particular criteria. And they're going to be able to frame it in such a way as to keep the conversation going rather than shutting it down. So, for example, I'm having trouble finding evidence for your claim. Can you help me find it? Um, can you walk me through that? Where the student, let alone the teacher, begins to see themselves as not pronouncing a label, but becoming a coach for you to arrive at that point and that discovery yourself, which is kind of like Jim Knight, Instructional Coaching 101, that I'm not going to tell you where you went wrong and awry. What I'm going to do is I'm going to ask questions for you to get there and make that discovery because then you'll own it and you're, you're going to be able to move forward. But one of the biggest things in efficacy, which is what ultimately what we want, passing through agency and then going into self-efficacy is you not only know these things, you are empowered to change these things. So at any moment, a grade, for example, is a temporary position along a larger continuum. So given subsequent evidence and learning, that grade can improve down the road. I will not be beholden to a uniform timeline, which gets in the way of almost everything we're trying to do. When we're trying to, well, if we were hired to teach so that kids learn, we would not have a uniform timeline. And we would not say, well, you're, you're in seventh grade, you learn this. And in eighth grade, you learn this. We would say, here's this body of knowledge that seems developmentally appropriate here. But if it takes you two years, that's great. So e-portfolios, digital portfolios that follow you. Here's your science portfolio through high school or your, your PE portfolio through middle school or whatever it might be. And whatever summer or year you are we, and you come to maturity in that area and you get it, we give you credit for that. There's lots and lots of ways to do that. But if you want students to own it, they have to have the tools for the analysis and they have to be empowered to be allowed to work on that and change their situation in relation to a standard. Again, it comes down to the hope and the kids who have a teacher who really engenders hope at every possible turn are going to go, all right, I might go for it because there's hope that I'm not going to be mired in my current situation or my mediocrity. I can transcend my current position is huge. But the, the idea that, uh, that grading, which remember is not assessment, and so many teachers confuse those two, grading is a report, and the best a grade can be is a summative judgment as of one arbitrary calendar date imposed on the next generation of, of humans. And it's a very artificial thing. So I'm just w wondering if people can keep those separated, suddenly the doors blast open, the hinges break off when it comes to student learning, student-centered. Grades tend to be from on high and not real helpful in the longer run. We still have to communicate. I mean, grades are about communication, absolutely. And we have to remove all those things that would impugn the integrity of a grade report. And there's so much of that we can go into at another time. But for right now, if I see assessment is about instruction as opposed to accountability and grades about reporting, suddenly there's opportunity for the student-centered or learner-centered classroom.
Absolutely. I think we all kind of need to keep that as a mantra that grading does not equal assessment. Um, and if we can really center assessment as under that instructional umbrella, as you said, that will be uh, putting the students at the center and giving them a lot more voice and choice. So thank you so much for that. And can I, can as a follow- one clarifying thing. Yeah. A litmus test teachers can use, I know I've used it, is when a student says, how am I doing in here? That's a sign we haven't done our jobs. The idea that I overtly focus on students' self-monitoring. So if somebody comes to me and says, Rick, how are you helping students self-monitor where they are? And they can explain it. I better hear about student-led conferences and the students analyzing their work against evaluative criteria of a standard and saying, well, I'm here now. Here's what I need to do to close the gap to get to the standard. All of that. So to what degree are we helping students self-monitor would be that litmus test. And no student should ever say or wonder, how am I doing in this subject versus that subject? Yeah, I totally agree. There's such a big difference between a student asking, like, did I do enough work versus can you give me feedback on my work? And I think that that gets at a similar sentiment. And that goes to the portfolios. Like, I include this particular work in my portfolio, and here is my analysis of what it represents in terms of evidence and the criteria for evaluative um, you know, the, the final summative demonstration of mastery, if it's going to go for a grade. So portfolio assessment, student-led conferences, um, and then the descriptive feedback techniques are kind of a, a three-pronged approach to really make this happen in, in today's classrooms. Yeah. So for teachers who are starting to um, build up their three-pronged approach, you mentioned STARS books on peer feedback as one place that they can look um, and learn more. Do you have other people you'd like to shout out for those of us trying to improve? <laughs> well, there are lots and lots of books out there, but you know, one of the biggest gurus is Susan Brookhart. I mean, she's a go-to for like the research side of it. And then there, she has lots of examples and things in there. So I'd highly recommend that, you know, visible learning, but the one on feedback from John Hattie, and I think it's uh, Clark uh, is the last name. So C-L-A-R-K-E. Uh, would be another one, but I don't, I forgot her name. It might be Susan. It might be Nancy. I forgot. Uh, but at any rate, those would be really, really good start off books with, along with uh, stars. Um, there are other books out there that are generally on assessment and grading and have really good tools to provide assessment like Rick Stiggins and Jan Chapuy and, and so many others. So I, I would go look at the professional library in any one school and see if there's any books on assessment and grading. Oh, one of my favorites is um, Larry Ainsworth, A-I-N, like Nancy Ainsworth, because he talks a lot about formative assessment. Like there's one called Common Formative Assessment 2.0, which is one of my favorite books out there that might be a good way to go. Oh, wait, there's another one, Connie. Oh, what's her last name? Star, do you know her name? Her first name's Connie, Connie Moss, I think it is. Um, she has a wonderful book on assessment. And then um, any of the books that, you know, from Assessment Training Institute, which now is you know, Solution Tree and other things, they're available out there, but there's also wonderful uh, websites and, you know, uh, online tutorials. Take a look at it. See if there's something that really fits your classroom. One thing I'd remind everybody listening is you can never take something as a template from one place and slide over and set it down and it works like perfectly in your situation. You'll always have to tweak it for what is, is real and important for you and your students. 
all such good stuff. Thank you so much. I, I'm wondering where would our listeners find you if they want to learn more about you and your work online? Well, there's always rickwarmly.com, which is my website. And I'm in the middle of this summer of revamping it, but it's there. You can get a hold of me, you know, by email, but there are other resources there. On Twitter, it's at rickwarmly2. There was at rickwarmly and it's still there, but that was hacked. And <clears throat> the Twitter gods and, uh, and myself, we can't get it back. So I'm so creative teaching the future of the world. I'm sure I just added a two. So at Rick Wormley <laughs> two and then Rick and then Rick at Rick dot dot com is the email. I'm happy to answer emails as well. Okay, great. This is, this has been fabulous um, talking with you and I know our listeners are probably going to research and and find out more about you and check out your books because there's just, we could talk for four hours about all of yeah, this. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> we'll have you back next time, Rick. We could do- dig deeply more into the, the grading conversation. Oh, I would love to do that, but uh, we'll, we'll speak in sound bites for today. Sounds great. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. It's an honor. Yeah. Thank you for learning with us today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. If you'd like any additional information from the show, check out the show notes. Learn more about Mastery Portfolio and how we support schools at masteryportfolio.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Mastery for All and on LinkedIn on our Mastery Portfolio page. We'd love for you to engage with us. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or know someone who would be an inspiring guest, please fill out the survey found in the show notes. And we'd love your feedback. Please write a review on your favorite podcasting app.